So hey guys, we're back with another podcast, and uh, this is going to be a really good one. Um, this is going to be with Tom Valenza, and Tom Valenza owns HistoricEyewearCompany.com. And if you get True West Magazine, what started it was is I kept seeing this this post in the in the trading post part of True West Magazine, and it would say Historic Eyewear. Uh, company and it gave his website historiceyewearcompany.com and he had some blue lens glasses and I'm like man I I I wear glasses so I'm thinking to myself man I what's the history of eyewear during the 1800s and come to find out Tom is a historian so it made a perfect fit and I I think you guys are going to love his story and of course, as always, I want to thank the folks over at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. If you want to feel a part of history and have Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and all the people down in Tombstone brought right to your home, because remember, they read the same newspaper too, then you want to get the Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. Uh, subscriptions are super reasonable. They're like 60 bucks for three years or $25 for one year. You really want to do the three-year because you're going to save a lot of money, and uh, then you don't have to worry about a subscription every year. And they'll deliver it right to your door, and it's a true newspaper. And in every paper, you're going to get Bob Bose Bell and his wonderful artwork in the center section. So check uh, check out tombstoneepitaph.com. I also want to thank the folks at Wild West History Association. I'm a member. Uh, we have Roundup coming up in Deadwood, and I can't wait. It's going to be in July. And if you want to learn more about being a member of uh, – the Wild West History Association, go on wildwesthistory.org. And again, they do wonderful things. You get the journal. It's 100 plus pages. It's actually a book with no commercials. So you don't, or commercials, you don't see ads in there. You don't see, you know, things for makeup or cars or stereo systems or whatever it is. And it's just 100 plus pages of true research provenance. And, and you guys are going to love it. And that is wildwesthistory.org. So Tom kind of came to me by mistake because I was looking in the trading post, like I said, in True West Magazine, and I'm a maniac of True West Magazine, which which means I get True West Magazine for life. I was I think it's 250 bucks, and you get uh, you become a maniac member, and you get True West Magazine for life, and you can you can do that at truestmagazine.com. But in the very back of the trading post was this this ad for historic eyewear, and I was like, man, I. I got to learn more about this. So I I called the number and Tom answered and uh, found out that there's a lot more to Tom than just eyewear. And we're going to talk to Tom. And uh, again, if you want to know about what he's doing, you can find his website, his company website at historiceyewearcompany.com. So, hey, Tom, how you doing, bud? Good morning, Mike. So how did you become an historic eyewear professional historian researcher? Because you're from the East Coast, correct? That's correct. Uh, New Jersey. New Jersey. So tell us your story of how a a man from New Jersey ends up in Arizona and making eyewear, historic eyewear. Well, uh, my parents were opticians both my mother and father. And I became an optician uh, at the age of 21. And at the time, you had to do uh, on-the-job training and education and testing. So uh, as an optician, uh, you're always interested in eyeglasses. And uh, one day at the shop, uh, we used to have a what we would call a part spin. And what we would do is sometimes we would do a lot of repairs, hinge repairs and temple replacements. And often the parts weren't available, we'd go to our parts bin. And one day I was going through the parts bin and there was these, mostly at the time it was in the, uh, let me think here, in the early 1970s. And most of the eyeglasses were these heavy black plastic type frames. Picture something that maybe Roy Orbison or Buddy Holly would wear or cat's eyes bejeweled with uh, rhinestones. And I found this one little lens. The glass was perfectly flat. It was tiny and had a very thin gold rim and a beautifully detailed joint or end piece on it. So I asked my father, I said, what is this? He said, that's just, it's an antique eyeglass. 
part of an antique eyeglass. So, so anyway, that piqued my interest. And uh, so what I started to do was collect antique eyeglasses. This was way before you can go online, you know, before eBay and internet or whatever. So on Saturday afternoons, we would work to one o'clock and Saturday afternoons, I would visit local antique stores. And I started to a collection of antique eyeglasses. And after a period of time, I, I knew they were antique eyeglasses, but I needed to know more like different time periods and when they were made, where they were made. So I started to do more research and, uh, I, I got a pretty terrific book by Richard Corson, Fashions and Eyeglasses, and that really helped a lot. And then, uh, it just, my interest just continued from there and my collection grew and, uh, that's how I got started in, uh, in this antique eyeglass, uh, my interest in antique eyeglasses. But as your interest grew, there was a decision. Did you, did you always live in the East Coast? Have you slowly come West? Or did you well, guys come out to Tucson and go, oh my God, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen? We visited... Uh, Several years ago, I think it was in the late 90s, we just came out for a vacation because I had never been out west. And we fell in love with it. I just came to the Arizona, Tucson area, and I felt like I was at home. And after dealing with the New Jersey weather and crowds and whatever for over 60 years, you know, we thought we actually purchased a piece of property thinking that someday we're going to retire out here. And then five years ago, we finally made the decision to do it. Before we get too old, I said, let's do it now. We're never going to do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I always had an interest in history. Cowboys, you know, I grew up watching cowboy shows on television in the 50s. Who then? God, there were so many of them. So um, when I would watch TV, or often we go to these uh, different reenactments and historical events. I started to notice eyeglasses, and more often than not, they were wearing incorrect eyeglasses. I remember seeing a movie with uh, it was about Frank James in his older years, and I think it was around circa 1890, and he's wearing a pair of spectacles. And I said, God, I just worked on a pair of those the other day. And I did some research, and I found out they weren't available until 1938. But there's Frank James wearing them in 1790. <laughs> so it it just convinced me that there was a possibly a little specialty market for uh, education and for uh, spectacles that were period correct. And uh, typically the originals were difficult to work on and hard to find. And so I decided uh, with my wife that this might be a little specialty market. Maybe we can get involved in and, so I can celebrate my uh, love of history and combine it with uh, my profession. And that's what we did. We started in uh, actually 2004, and we got a lot of rejections, and uh, it was really tough to get started. But by 2010, we were in business, and we made our first sale in 2010. But you're, but it's more than his, than a specialty market because – as I researched you, you're everywhere where I where historic eyewear is important because it's uh, you're on the internet. You've you've written papers. You're more than just a a little niche market with your wife. Like there's more about you. So are you now? Are you an optop- optician by trade? Yes, optician by trade. That's correct. And yeah. so. In the 1800s, when you and I spoke on a pre-interview, I was fascinated because I, how did they, how did they, <laughs> it's so dumb, but how did they take and, and measure glasses in the 1800s? Because when I go and get fitted for my contacts and glasses, you know, I've got this big machine and we all know it. You put this big thing and the doctor goes, now, better, worse. You know, or one or two, and you have to go two, and then he zeroes it in, and then I don't know how it's like magic. Poof! There's your your lens. They didn't have that in the 1800s. So how were glasses made, and how were how did an optician dial in to where a person needed glasses 
and was able to actually make the correct prescription? Okay, that's a good question, actually. Uh, what they would do is, typically you would have a, what they would call a spectacle peddler, and he would have several pair of eyeglasses with different focal lengths. And a person would just try on several pair, and then after trying on a few different pair, they say, well, this one seems to work the best, and that was sort of how they made their decision. Just trial and error. Yeah, uh, as that was in the right up until the really eight, early 1800s. And then it got to a point where during the 1800s, you could uh, go into a hardware store and it was the same process. You try on several pair. Um, but if you live in the larger cities like New York or Boston or Philadelphia, there you can actually go to an, an oculist and have your eyes examined much in the same way they do today without all this sophisticated machinery, just different sets of trial lenses. And they can dial in and focus and get you, you know, a little bit more precise prescription for your needs. But uh, basically, it was mostly trial and error. Okay, so I'm going to refine my question. The process of making a lens, let's go, you know, in the 1800s, how did they make a lens? I, because they were mostly, I'm going to assume, a flat lens where today, you know, you can get curved lenses and things like that. So okay. well, how did they make those, how did they actually make the lenses? Well, they would have, most of the lenses up until about 1880 were imported from Europe. And what they would do is they would have a, it's called a lap machine. You would have a, 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 a convex surface, and then the, the, the glass would go in the convex surface, and then you would have a concave surface, and it would be a slow process of polishing. So these lenses, prescription lenses, did have curvature to them. And they would either be plano convex, which would be a flat side, and then a, a curved side in the front, or they would be plano concave, where they were the curved sides inward on the front and the back of the lens. And then they also had colored glass. Typically, colored glass was a flat lens, like a window pane. And it would be made in sheets, and different oxides would be added to the molten glass, and that would give it the color. And once the glass hardened, it would be cut in two-inch squares or whatever, and then it could be sent to opticians or, or spectacle makers, and then they can cut it to size and shape to fit the frames. Hmm. So this is going on, because you mentioned in um, your your website, and if you guys want to find out about what uh, Tom does, if you go on the internet and type in the word history on your face, a history on your face, his website will show up as historiceyewearcompany.com. Click on that link and you can find out more about what we're talking about. And again, it's called History on Your Face and, and then tap on the link to uh, historiceyewearcompany.com and you can read all about what Tom and I are talking about. There was a mention, you mentioned in an article that back to when you said about how they they gave glasses. They actually had glasses on a trial period. Like you could go in and get them and wear them for weeks on end and then go back and say, mm, no, that's not right. And then go get another pair and then stay a few weeks. And then, yeah, that's not right. Is, was that real? I mean, could you try on glasses like we try on a car and test drive them for a while? Yes. Typically in, in the cities, you can do that. The opticians would offer this as a benefit if you purchase their spectacles. So you could try them, and if, if it didn't work out, you can return them and try a different pair with a different focal length or a different power or whatever. But, uh, of course, if you bought your spectacles from a, a spectacle peddler who's in town one day and gone the next day, then you're out of luck. But, yeah, that did happen. Yep. When the Civil War came, there were different styles and frames throughout the 1800s, starting really, I think, around the eight, around the Civil War is what you mentioned. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I hope you do. Um, around the Civil War, and then as the 1800s progressed, there were different styles of frames. 
And you could have had things like uh, lens shapes, including oval, oblong, uh, octagon. And then the frames obviously followed suit. What were some of the frame styles during the 1800s, starting at around, I think, around the, around the Civil War period, all the way up to the 1880s to where you mentioned that frameless became really popular? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the, probably the most common style or shape was an oval shape. And um, then, of course, there was an oblong, which is a rectangular with rounded corners. And some were some had square corners that were very rectangular, where others had rounded. And then the octagon shape was also popular. And um, during the Civil War period, these were the most popular shapes. And uh, probably, oh, I think it was around maybe 1840 or so, rimless style, where the lenses were dr drilled and mounted to the bridge with screws, and then the the end piece joints with the temples connected were drilled and also mounted. But these slowly got more popular over a period of time, and it wasn't until really about 1870 when you start to see these, what we call rimless, back then they called them frameless styles. Okay. Can I get you real quickly? Speak up a little bit. Cut yes. Fade. There okay. you go. Fading back on me. So the, um, the lenses, and just so you know, folks, I don't edit anything. So Tom and I are live and, and sometimes that happens. Um, the eyeglass costs because People didn't make a lot of money back then during that period. Were eyeglasses expensive? Well, I guess it's all relative, but um, you can buy a, a steel frame or a, a blued steel frame uh, and even some brass frames for about 50 cents. In today's dollars, I don't know what that would be. And then if you wanted a higher quality frame, coin silver, uh, with, with what they would refer to as the best optics, you could spend up to $1.70. And there were some German brass frames made at the time. They were brass and coin, not coin silver. Um, give me a second here. Well, anyway, they were mostly brass frames and German silver, which was an alloy that looked like silver, wasn't. And they can be purchased for less than 50 cents a pair. Uh, the quality wasn't really as good, but, uh, so anywhere from about 50 cents to a dollar 70 in the, in the 1800s. Because you mentioned about the silver, right? Because there was coin silver. And then I think the other word was it was a P, like point silver. And then uh, uh, pure, 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 pure coin. coin. You had pure coin and coin silver, and those were those were made out of uh, almost ninety percent silver. And then there was That's a different correct. correct, and there was a different alloy. But then they came up with German silver. That's right. So, so how did German they, silver come about? Well, they were looking. Throughout the 1800s, from the early 1800s, as spectacle development progressed towards the 1900s, they were always looking to make spectacles less expensive. And they were, they were working from, uh, let's say, early 1800s, spectacle makers would, would make one pair of spectacles at a time. So it make, they may spend a day to make one pair of spectacles. But as we approach maybe 1860, we start to see some signs of mass production. And the mass production was to make more spectacles, make them more quickly, more cheaply. So, so someone, a, a chemist, uh, a German chemist came up with what we call German silver. And it was a combination or an alloy of copper, zinc, and nickel. It was, it was very durable. It looked like silver, and um, it was very popular. And some unscrupulous uh, spectacle uh, sellers would try to point it off as actual silver, but um, coin silver was very popular at the time. 
And the reason was it was less expensive. And did that become the standard at some point through the 1800s, German silver, or were there manufacturers out there making glasses out of different materials? Oh, they were still, they were still making glasses out of uh, steel, blue steel, brass, coin silver. Um, as we get later into the 1800s, then they started to use more alloys. Uh, Bausch and Loam developed a, a hard rubber pince-nez style frame. So, uh, no, coin silver was just one of the, I'm sorry, um, German silver was just one of the many uh, materials that was available. So, but it was varied. So let's talk then about the eyeglasses themselves. Um, because if you really look at glasses that were made in the 1800s, and here we are in the 2000s, they haven't really changed much. I mean, there's nose pieces and things like that. But when you think about things like the temple, the temple design was a lot different than what we have today because some of them were slide or they were a hook temple or they were a folding temple. Can you talk a little bit about the temples and the designs and the changes made? Uh, yeah. The uh, temples, the first spectacles to actually have temples, uh, there was an English optician by the name of uh, Edward Scarlett. And I believe it was around 1927. He was the first one to actually put temples on spectacles or on eyeglasses. And they were short and they would just stop just before the ear and press against the temples. And I think part of the reason they were designed that way was a lot of wigs were worn during that time period, so it didn't interfere with the wig. But it wasn't long before the temples were lengthened so that they would go over the ear. And the uh, slide temples were pretty, were very popular in America from around 1835 through 1900. And the advantage was there was a one-size-fits-all temple. And then they can be retracted and put into a much smaller compact storage case. So they were very popular. And they came in different thicknesses. And in the earlier 1800s, they were bulkier and thicker and heavier. And then as time progressed, they became thinner and lighter. And then there was a period of time where the women would complain that the temples, the slide temples would catch in their hair. So then the optical uh, manufacturers started making what they called a ladies' temple. And basically, it's just a one piece long straight temple, similar to what we wear today. And they were so popular that they started to actually um, use them for men's frames too, because they were easy to take off and easy to take on. And they had different style temples. Uh, in addition to the slide temple, they had a what they would call a double hinged temple, and the temple would fold in half and then fold again, again against the front of the the frame. So that again would allow the the frame to fit in a more compact case. And they did the same thing. They had a turn pin style temple, which was really two pieces riveted at the joint where they can fold over one another and and be more compact um but uh it was until about actually around 1871 or so they there was a patent for a curl temple with spring steel and it curled around your ear and the advantage of these was they stayed on very well but they were also very painful to wear and it wasn't, it wasn't not even 10 years before they improved upon it. And they made what we call today a cable temple. It's thicker and there's a solid core and wires wrapped around it. But uh, that's still in use today. So they, you know, they had different style temples or different style glasses. And hmm. those changed like the eyeglasses themselves over the uh, 1800s. There were changes made in the frames. 
there were ovals, or actually, what's what was popular during the Civil War? I think it was like a very small frame. All of the uh, the frames made during, well, I say pre nineteen hundred. Well, first of all, they were all unisex, and the, due to the lens technology, the lenses could only be ground to a certain size. So the frames were made to work, you know, to to work with the size of the uh, the lenses that were available. They were much smaller. Also. What happened was the, uh, well, during the Civil War, the average male was about 135 pounds and five foot six. So people were much smaller back then. But the frame, so anyway, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, so when, when people wore these glasses, which were very small, they, it would give them a certain look. So what we tried to do is to capture that look, but people are larger today. There's, you'll, it's hard to find a reenactor who's five foot six and uh, 135 pounds and 26 years old. So uh, what we did was we have a few different sizes. So for larger people, you can you can wear a larger frame, and it still gives you that period correct look. But at the same time, the larger lenses will uh, frame sizes will accommodate modern lenses. So if you wear a bifocal or a progressive lens or whatever, you can get to a larger size and still be able to to do that, have proper vision while you're wearing a period correct frame. But but back in the eighteen I'm sorry, back in the eighteen hundreds, yes, the the sizes were much smaller. But there were also frames that had side pieces, like the lenses were on the sides and then the glasses were in the front. And it was almost like like a modern day, like a protection, like a goggle. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, they were. It was sort of a precursor to our our what we would call a wraparound frame today. They had uh, it was four lens spectacles. Had your two normal lenses, and then hinged at the outside edge of each lens was another lens that would fold out, and it would fold out along your temple, and that would give you protection from the side as well as the front. And often these can be used, these can be used for, you can have in the front lens, you could have your distance prescription. And in the side lens, you can have the reading edition where when you folded the lenses in against each other, you, you can convert your glasses to a reading glass. Or it could have just been a colored lens on the side that was, excuse me, desert dust, a colored lens on the side that was, uh, colored flat glass, and when that was folded over your, let's say, distance prescription, then all of a sudden you had a sunglass. So they had a lot of different uses, and they were very popular. Um, and today, on the on the used market, they seem to uh, fetch more money than the uh, original two-lens styles. So as, as eyeglasses are progressing through the 1800s, color lenses come about, and and I, I love the look. Like I see people wearing vintage glasses, and they're in yellow lenses or blue lenses. Can you talk about the colors of the lenses? Because there was were there values to having a blue lens or a yellow lens, or I think there was a green lens, or were there different colors? What was the value to having different colored lenses? Well, during the Civil War, the most popular colors available were green, blue, and neutral gray. And often it was referred to as London smoke. And any of these colors came in a range of density from very light to very dark. There were about seven different stages available at the time. So depending on your needs, you can get a medium gray lens or you can get a dark gray lens or you can get a light gray lens. And they were all designed to cut glare, to work as a modern sunglass. So opticians had, different opticians had different preferences based on, based on nothing scientific, but mostly just their, their own opinions where some felt green was better than blue, others felt blue were better than green. And, but there's nothing scientific 
uh, about different color lenses used for different purposes, except maybe for uh, iron smelters or blacksmith who wore a very dark lens to protect their eyes from that bright glare. But other than that, um, it was just personal preference. Because there is, there is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was saying, there is a story that uh, if you wore green lenses during the Civil War, it meant you had syphilis. But actually, colored glass lenses were worn the same way we use sunglasses today, just to protect from glare uh, and light. And there was no specific colors designed for specific purposes. And there could have been maybe oh, two dozen different eye infirmities that would cause sensitivity to light. And then people would wear these glasses just for protection. The only difference is they were called protective spectacles. Uh, today, we use the term sunglasses, but sunglasses is really a modern term. And it didn't really uh, come about till after 1900. So a lot of people say, well, they didn't have sunglasses back then. Well, they did. They just called them protective spectacles. Hmm. As the 1800 progressed, though, into the 1870s, 1880s, did they standard the color? Did they say, listen, um, the London gray or the London fog, whatever that was, is that's going to be the standard? Or did the color still continue on through the 1800s into the 1900s? No, there was no standard. The colors continued on. Actually, after, oh, I think it was around 1872, we started to see some orange-colored lenses and deep amber, dark amber-colored lenses, almost like a brownish lens. Um, and then when we get into the 1890s, we see pink lenses. So, um, if anything, the color palette expanded as we progressed through the 1800s. And if you're wondering who we're talking to, this is Tom Valenza. Uh, Tom is the owner of HistoricEyewearCompany.com. Again, that's HistoricEyewearCompany.com. And you can find uh, everything that you need, especially if you're a reenactor or somebody who is doing um, like reenactments. This is the man and the company that you're going to want to see because so many people spend thousands of dollars on their clothing and the belts and the shoes and the hat, and then they forget about the eyewear. And that almost becomes a second, almost like it's forgotten about because they, they you wear your standard glasses and it doesn't complete, like it doesn't complete the whole uniform. And so if you really want to complete your whole uniform, whether you're a Civil War reenactor or somebody who likes dressing an 1800s period piece, you really want to get a hold of Tom. And you can do so at Historic Eyewear Company dot com. There is discussion about temples and the different types of nose pieces all the way to the saddle bridge, which I think was, you wrote that the saddle bridge became pretty standard in the late 1800s. What were some of the different temples that as from the civil war all the way out that progressed through eyewear? Okay. Yeah, this the saddle well the saddle bridge it was about eighteen seventy five when we first see a saddle bridge. Oh. But now so now you you ask about temples, different temples? Yes. Okay. Well the the temples we had uh there were loop slide temples and they were different configurations. We had a band band slide temples. In the earlier eighteen hundreds we had a what they would call a broad slide temple. Again, these are all retractable, so they would fit in smaller cases. And to uh, modern collectors today, refer to the broad side often as a pin and slot temple. It's, it's it's pretty clear if you actually see a picture of it, what it looked like, you know. And if, like I mentioned before, there were turn pin temples, and then there were the curl temples, which developed into the... Uh, Cable temples, and then uh, now I don't know if you were one, but then also as far as the bridges, different bridge sizes of bridge types. You mentioned the the uh, saddle bridge, right? That's that was that was very popular from about eighteen seventy five, God, and through the 
I would think through the 1940s easily. Oh wow! Yeah, but they had a, they also had a uh, what we would call a a crank bridge. It sort of looked like a crank handle handle or an English style nose piece. And then there was a sea bridge. There were different styles, different manufacturers tried different things, and it all affected the way that the spectacles looked. You know, at the time of the uh, they were manufactured. <clears throat> K-Bridge spectacles were really popular, and a lot of the uh, blue steel frames were made with what we call a K-Bridge. Um, if you look at our article, there's some illustrations of it, and uh, they were used with a type of lens called coquille. Coquille lenses were almost like a, uh, what would you call it, um, a, a watch, a glass over, uh, over um, a watch. I uh, had like a big, a large curvature to it, a deep curvature. And these were worn uh, often by the uh, soldiers in the Civil War. They came with blue lenses and gray lenses, and they were basically just a sunglass for the soldiers. Wow. But um, but where am I? So go on, Mike. <laughs> oh, no, I'm listening. Know. I'm listening oh. to you. I don't, I don't mind. Ramble away. We were, that's the way I learn. And I don't know about other people, but I learn by just by listening to people. When, um, when, um, you, you made note in your article about le- lens cases. Today we get a glasses, we go to a, a store, we get reading glasses, or we go to our, our optician or optometrist and we get our, our glasses and there's a lens case that comes with it. And sometimes it's just a little fabric that just pushes in a little pouch and, you know, that's it. But during the 1800s, glass cases were very ornate and they were actually beautiful. Yes, yes, they definitely Can you go are. through that? Sure. Well, actually, technically, uh, we would refer to them as spectacle cases. But whatever the price of spectacles at the time, you wanted to protect them. So cases were sold with these spectacles. And uh, this was a way to protect your spectacles when you weren't wearing them. Kept the lenses from scratching, and it offered some protection if they were dropped. And uh, many of them during the 1800s were made of pressed paper, and then they were covered with a Moroccan leather. And the leather could be in, in nice shades of red or brown or black. And um, there were some embroidered cloth cases available in some were uh, handmade wooden boxes where the top would slip off, the spectacles can be put in, and then the top could be put back on. And then very, very popular during uh, the Civil War were uh, what we call Parker cases. They were just tin punched out cases, and they typically have some type of a material lining on the bottom so that when the frame and glasses were in the case and they were moved around they didn't get scratched so easily but um cases were also made of german silver and most of these were metal flip top cases where when they closed it was just friction that would hold them closed typically they didn't have any latches on them and uh, they could be made of of real silver if you had the money and wanted to spend it on a case or just the tin and um they were very popular, and cases, just like eyeglasses, cases would be used and reused. There wasn't anything fashionable about them. So you could have a pair of eyeglasses, and when the time came just to replace the lenses, and you wear the same frame and uh, use the same eyeglass case for, for years. But um, there were, God, I, I don't know, I'd have to venture to say there were, Dozens and dozens of different styles available, all dependent on the manufacturer and what they felt they wanted to offer. Well, we got about 20 minutes left. It goes by fast. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about you. Uh, and let's, let's speed forward up to 2022. Somebody is getting an outfit. They're, they're putting together their uniform. They're putting together their Western period piece. Maybe they like going down to Tombstone as a reenactor or up to 
Deadwood or to Prescott or something, and they like to do reenactments. And they they see your website, or somebody is like, "Hey, you know, I want glasses to look the period piece." What's the process like? What's the process? Does somebody do they travel to see you, or do they do everything over the phone, or do they do a Zoom call? What's the process? Let's say Mike wants to get something to be period piece, and he and he literally and Mike would say to you because I know I know me, Tom. I don't have a clue on what I'm doing, but I know what I want. What do I do? Okay. <clears throat> Typically, uh, you can order online. Or you can order over the phone because a lot of people have questions. And a lot of our customers, surprisingly, don't have computers. Hmm. So they really have no information other than what they see in True West or Cowboys and Indians in the ads. So what we, can, what we do, first of all, is look for the time period that you're trying to represent. Okay, if it's a Civil War, the Old West, the way the glasses were manufactured, the same glasses were worn through that, through both those time periods. So the next thing we look at is your physical size. If you're a large person, I'm about five foot ten, two hundred and five pounds. The large, I have the larger styles on our website will probably be fit you better, give you that better look. If you're my wife, let's say five foot four and 120 pounds, then some of the smaller styles work better. So we have a, on the website, we have a spectacle size reference page. If you print it out and uh, there's a little measure, ruler measurement on the bottom, if that measures one inch, these will be the exact size of the spectacles. So you can hold your existing eyeglasses over them to get an idea some of our customers actually go through the trouble of cutting it out just to see what the size looks like. But um, so you have to decide on the period. Then you decide on the size. It's it's there's not like a lot of choices. And all even our larger sizes are smaller than any modern eyeglass would be because they were worn smaller back in the 1800s. And then from there, you decide on the color. Um, if you're a, a Civil War grunt Blute steel would probably work for you because it was the least expensive frame you can buy at the time. Now, if you're an officer in the uh, during the Civil War, then maybe you'd want a coin silver look. So, um, you know, there's a few things to to consider, but overall, um, you know, just a, a few questions, and we could we can figure out what might work for you. And then what happens is when you get the frame, if for any reason it doesn't work for you. We can either switch it out for something else or I give customers a refund. You know, they would pay the postage, but I'd refund them the money for the frame. So, um, you know, it, it seems like it could be a difficult process, but it's not just uh, the best thing is, you know, just to call and we can discuss it and go from there. Do people send you photos of like this is – my outfit and they'll do a selfie or they'll have someone take a photo and say, this is the look I'm looking to achieve. Um, will sometimes people say, I really like this glass and you'll be like, mm, wrong period, wrong, wrong part of history. That lens is for 1810 and not 1880. Yes, or, that, that does happen. Hmm. But typically, um, most of the photos I get are actually uh, after they have their spectacles oh, gotcha. and and they're in their outfits. But um, there are questions. You know, a lot of people think uh, wearing a, during the Civil well, not Civil War, but like the Old West time period, mm -hmm. 1865 through, let's say, 1890, and they're wearing round spectacles. And round spectacles were just not available during that time period. So when they tell me I want round spectacles, I'll tell you, well, if you're if you're portraying an old-west character and you want round spectacles, they didn't have them. You really should be wearing an oval spectacle. Hmm. Is it difficult? <laughs> We're going to be a weird question. Is it difficult to go to the movies or watch a movie from home and it's a period <laughs> – you're laughing already. It's a period piece 
you know, during that period of the 1800s, do you look at them and go look at your wife and go, oh my God, they got the wrong glasses. I, I can't even watch it any longer. I can't tell you how often that happens with Tarantino <laughs> movies. I'm like, oh my God, what is this guy doing? He doesn't care. He's just looking for a a certain look. But oh yeah, that happens often. As a matter of fact, my friend Alan, the, the fellow that uh, we wrote that you wrote the article together, he's a researcher and he's an author and he is way into this. And he wanted to start a little uh, online thing where we look at these movies and wherever there's incorrect spectacles for the time, you know, we put it up on the, we put it up on the website or whatever and say that they only missed by 400 years or something like that. But I didn't think that was such a good idea. We don't want to offend anybody. All we can do is try to put some information out there and hope they read it. And I do find that people have a tendency not to read. We try to put as much information as we can on the website, but, People just look at the ad and call up and hmm. over, overlook the website or whatever. But, uh, yes, all the time. As a matter of fact, what's really what's really nice is once in a while now, initially our market was Civil War actors and reenactors, Old West actors and reenactors. And, and then we found that we were getting some professional Santas and people who were just into this whole Victorian era. And uh, some steampunkers. So that was really nice. But then we started getting calls from TV studios and movie studios. And and one day we see Colin Firth. There's a Showtime show, The Nick, wearing our spectacles. And then um, on Apple TV, uh, Dickinson and me, they're wearing our spectacles. And there's a new uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, and they're wearing our spectacles. And then, of course... It's period incorrect, but Hamilton, the Broadway show, mm-hmm. God, we got a call from them and they needed something. And it's, it's less historically accurate, but more for effect. So they, we've been supplying them with spectacles, uh, since they were off Broadway. Wow. And, uh, so that's nice. So yeah, when I see the wrong spectacles, I cringe. But when I, when I do see the, the correct spectacles, even if they're not ours, a lot of times, these uh, costume designers will find original antique pieces and they just work so beautifully. It's really nice. Well, this is Tom. We're talking to Tom Valenza and uh, he owns along with his wife, the historic eyewear company.com. If you want to get a hold of Tom, that's really the best way. I'm not going to give his phone number out, but it really is the best way. That's honestly how I did it because I went to the website and it was a contact me and I put some information down and Tom contacted me. And that's really the best way. So if you're a period piece actor during the 1800s and you really want the complete authentic look, like you've already spent thousands of dollars to look uh, in clothing and hats and buttons and everything, you really should finish off the the look and and give yourself, especially if you're an eyewear uh, person who wears spectacles or glasses, that really is the best way is to complete it, is to go to historiceyewearcompany.com. If you wanted more, again, if you wanted to see the article that um, we basically have been following along, honestly, by accident, I was reading yesterday. It takes me about, about two to three weeks to do one podcast, even though I do them almost every week. The research and the, and the reading overlaps. And I got down to the end and I looked at the very last page last night and I was like, oh my God, there's Tom's name. Like I didn't even know that the article I was reading was going to be the person that I was interviewing. It's kind of funny. But there is so much information packed in it. So, you know, don't just use the web or not the, the website, but just don't use the podcast. Dig a little deeper because there is pictures and there are um, some wonderful uh, photography, uh, Civil War and Old West photography, and including a picture of Abraham Lincoln's uh, glasses, spectacles that he wore the night he was shot at Ford's Theater. He's got a picture of that in this article. It's really an amazing uh, piece. And again, if you go to historiceyewear.com um, and type in, actually on the internet, let me get back to it. I know, sorry for the ruffling of papers. It's called History on Your Face. Uh, common spectacle styles before, during, and after the Civil War. Again, that's uh, type in your search queue. Historic um, history, excuse me, history on your face. Uh, 
common spectacles uh, styles before, during, and after the Civil War. If you just type in the words history on your face, uh, this you'll see maybe one or two links down, and then you'll see the historiceyewearcompany.com. That's where you tap on that. It'll take you to this article, and it's I think it's like 19 pages or 20 pages, and you definitely want to read it and, and go back on it, especially if you want to really finish off that that period piece that you're wearing from the 1800s, because man, it'll it just it stands out. Anything you want to add before we go? Yeah, as far as that article, uh, it's a PDF. You can pull it up uh, on the web the website as a PDF and print it out. That's print exactly out what I did. And hand it out to your friends as Christmas it's primary presents. Primary source information, so it's not mm. you know it's not. Uh, I have a friend whose cousin knew a guy whose uncle told me this and he heard it from it's <laughs> printed out spread the word the more people know uh the better off we all are yeah i didn't even think i made a joke as a christmas present but then you actually said that's a great thing print it out and then give it to people and if somebody says you know i'm i'm looking to complete my outfit oh you know the greatest thing to say is i got a guy i got a guy and um <laughs> that is really the best thing so again this is tom at historic eyewearcompany.com. Of course, I want to thank the folks with the Tombstone Epitaph. My good friend, Mark Boardman, he's a pastor. He's been super busy this week with, with some prayers and stuff. But if you want to know more about what Mark's doing, you can do so by becoming a subscriber to the Tombstone Epitaph. And that is at tombstoneepitaph.com. Of course, I also want to urge you to join the Wild West History Association. Now, their memberships are about 75 bucks a year. Um, if you round up to, let's just for mathematical purposes, we'll say 80 bucks because I'm horrible at math. That means you're getting a book delivered to your door, four books a year. That's how many times a journal comes out. And it's basically a book for 20 bucks, and that includes shipping and handling. That is a great deal. And then you get other things, including the roundup, and you get special events and things you can do and places to go. It's really a fantastic way to get involved in Western history. Of course, you can also do, uh, since Tom is advertising, a shout out to Bob Bozbell, who we've had on a podcast a couple of times, and he's the owner of True West Magazine, and you can find True West Magazine at truewestmagazine.com. As always, I appreciate you guys. Uh, if you're listening on or on YouTube, be sure to hit the subscribe button and set notifications because I'm putting podcasts out almost weekly. Uh, if you're on Apple iTunes and Spotify, you know, give me a like and a review. That helps with distribution, and I appreciate you guys a bunch. So until I can't even say it. Until next time, safe travels, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>